I was a little bit inspired by Howard's talk last night and also his guided instruction this morning to um, talk tonight about the secret teachings. Get ready. (laughs) I'd like to start with... um, something that Shantideva, the great Buddhist teacher and scholar, wrote called The Miracle of Awakening. As a blind man feels when he finds a pearl in a dustbin, so am I amazed by the miracle of awakening rising in my consciousness. It is the nectar of immortality that delivers us from death the treasure that lifts us above poverty into the wealth of generosity, the tree that gives shade to us when we roam about scorched by life, the bridge that takes us across the stormy river of life, the cool moon of compassion that calms our mind when it is agitated, the sun that dispels darkness, the butter made from the milk of kindness by churning it with the Dharma. It is a feast of joy to which all are invited. Mm, Yum. Sounds good, doesn't it? Now, when I started practice way back when, and my first teacher, as I said, was a Tibetan Lama, I knew nothing about Buddhism, nothing. I was a cynical New Yorker. I had a PhD in psychology, and I thought that was going to be it. You know, it would tell me what I needed to know about the mind and suffering and human beings. And it told me a lot. It was useful. But then I bumped into a llama in Berkeley, and he said, come see me. And so I went one time with a friend, and um, he said he was going to give teachings on dreams. And I thought, well, that's good, because I'm a psychologist, I'm interested in dreams, I'd love to, you know, hear what he has to say. So I went to this workshop, and his his English was, was English, but it was... Tibetan English. And in Tibetan, they rearrange sentences, so everything kind of appears in a different order than we're used to. So I listened to him. I really didn't understand very much. In fact, nothing. I I could see that he was really, you know, had some kind of energy that was very amazing, and, and he seemed very full of all kinds of information, but I, it just, you know, like, <laughs> whoa, up here. But there was one moment in that workshop, or in that teaching, that I can say, in looking back, really changed my life, right there. And it was when somebody asked him a question about compassion, and he turned to the person And suddenly, I felt what came to me was that compassion 
manifested. Compassion was a living force in the room in that moment. And I had never experienced that before. I had never felt that compassion could be experienced that way. To me, it was a nice kind of spiritual word, but it didn't have that living quality to it. But there it was in the room, and my heart just completely opened, and I was stunned, stopped my mind, and made me deeply interested to hear more. And so I ended up um, studying with him for some time, still being very clueless in many ways, but very moved and sensing that there was a potential here which I wanted to know more about. Because how could this have come to me that I, I felt this compassion for the first time in my life? So I did. I studied with him. And over a period of time, I came to believe, not because of anything that he said, but just be my own little mythology about spirituality and what was being offered, I came to this idea that there were secret teachings and that maybe someday he would give them to me. That I would be summoned, you know, to some place or back room or some some special time when, you know, the something would happen of a dramatic nature and that maybe some words would be, you know, whispered in my ear and I would receive the secret teachings and, you know, that would be it. Well, that never happened, of course, (laughs) because that's a fairy tale. That never happened. And what I came to understand over the years of practice after practicing with him for some time. I went and practiced in the Zen tradition, and then eventually I came into this tradition, the the Vipassana tradition, and studied with Jack Kornfield and Joseph Goldstein. And what I came to understand over many years of practice, it took me a long time to let go of that myth of the secret teachings. What I came to understand is that the secret teachings are we could say, self-secret. That the teachings that, we, that appear to us as secret are those that we keep hidden from ourselves. That nobody else is keeping them a secret. In fact, somebody could be standing right in front of us shouting <laughs> the secret teachings and somehow we would not hear it. <laughs> until we are ready, until there is some readiness inside of us to peel away the layers of conditioning, the layers of a kind of blindness, or what the Buddha called ignorance, to see what is being said, to see it in our own experience, not to have it come from the outside, but to see it for ourselves. And when we see it for ourselves, we receive something that often seems so obvious that we are shocked that we didn't see it before. 
you know, it's a little bit like uh, this um, stereogram. Have you, perhaps many of you have experienced, they, they were around a few years ago, I don't know if they're still around, but there's a picture of that is uh, either on a poster or on a card, and it's, it looks just like a bunch of dots, colored dots. And yet, these colored dots, if you look at them long enough, and if you relax enough, and if you have friends coaching you, and <laughs> eventually, it will say, you know, this is actually a picture of, say, a boat sailing on a lake. And you look and you just see dots. You don't see a boat. You don't see a lake. You just see dots. But if you look long enough, suddenly it jumps out. There's a boat. There's a lake. There's trees. It's so obvious right there. And it's very vivid and alive. And once you've seen it, of course, you can't not see it. Now, nothing has changed but your perception. Nothing has changed but your perception. And that's very much the process of practice of cleansing our perception, of changing our perception so that we see what we had not seen before. Another way to say this is that when we sit down on the cushion, we don't realize the potential that awaits us. We don't realize the potential that lies within us. We may have heard about it. We may have read about it, or we, you know, it might like reading that that piece by Shanti Deva. We we hear something, but it doesn't seem to apply to us. And so it takes some time to recognize those words as being true within our own experience. A more mundane example from my early practice, um, when I I think it was perhaps my first three-month course, anyway, it was one of the the early three-month courses where I had been sitting and I found sitting extremely challenging. I had so much to work with. I mean, I had a lot going on when I first sat down. I just had all kinds of um, stuff from the past. Even though I here I was a psychologist, I thought I had dealt with the past, you know, kind of done that bit. Well, it was a, it was a bit of a, a shock to see how much there was still in me that was needing attention. So my practice was not boring. It was not dull. It was quite lively. And I thought, okay, well, this is it. This is practice, you know. So that went on for some weeks. And then over time, everything settled down. And it began to seem like nothing was happening. I was just sitting, walking, and I kept waiting for all, you know, more of this intensity, and and it just wasn't there. So I remember going to Joseph Goldstein and uh, in an interview and, and asking him and saying, you know, I, I don't know what's wrong, something, you know, there's, there's nothing happening here. 
I don't know where it all went. It's gone, you know. And he asked me a few questions, and then he smiled, and he said, Anna, he said, I think what you're beginning to experience is calm. <laughs> and I th- my first thought was, I don't do calm. <laughs> That's not me. I didn't think of myself as a person who had that in their repertoire. But there it was. There it was. And so I got to get to know calmness. And we are all going to find things like that in our own practice, in ourselves that don't fit our ideas about ourselves or about what we imagine is going to happen. When we shine this light of awareness inside, we activate the potential that lies within. And in the Buddhist world, it is viewed, it is believed, it is seen that the greatest potential in all human beings lies in what is called realizing the nature of mind. Realizing the nature of mind. You know, how he said um, from Rumi, Buddha is your own mind. And again, this morning in his guidance, he said, look directly at your own mind. This is a, a different understanding than we, we have learned in our, in our upbringing in the West. This, this teaching on the nature of mind is not commonly known in the Western cultures. Sogyal Rinpoche writes about this. He said, there is no general information about the nature of mind. It is hardly ever written about by writers or intellectuals. Modern philosophers do not speak of it directly. The majority of scientists deny it could possibly be there at all. It plays no part in pop culture. No one sings about it. No one talks about it in plays. It's not on TV. We are educated to believe that nothing is real beyond what we can perceive with our ordinary senses. We do sometimes have glimpses but our culture gives us no context or encouragement for understanding them or nurturing them. So we tend to ignore such openings. This is perhaps the darkest and most disturbing aspect of modern civilization. It's ignorance and repression of who we really are. It is this nature of mind which we are studying when we come to sit. Whether we know it or not, we are awakening the potential in us to know the nature of, of mind, and we are learning to recognize it in ourselves. The nature of mind, or the mind, is seen to have two aspects. One is the relative level of mind, which is the thinking mind, the conceptual mind, the 
content of our mind, all the thoughts and feelings and mental states and emotions and the way we relate to objects in the world, all that is on the relative level of mind. The other level of mind is called the absolute level of mind or the mind's essential nature or Buddha nature or awareness. It is referred to by all these names. This is the level of mind in which which knows which shines the light of awareness, which is always on. The light of awareness is always on. There is no off button. The mind's essential nature is this awareness. And when we practice, and as Howie was guiding us this morning, we have opportunities to taste what what this essential nature is, to touch it directly, to experience it directly in our experience. Many words are used to describe it. Right now I'd like to say some of these words and see what it evokes in you as I say them. Empty, clear, luminous, awake, indestructible, ungraspable, invisible, ever-present, uncreated, pure. All these are just words. Attempts to point directly at this experience that can be touched of this essential nature of mind. Now, This mind is what we fall into when we let go. This is why we emphasize so much letting go. And, you know, it's it's before you let go, you don't know what you're letting go of and you don't know what you're letting go into. I remember years ago, Joseph using this analogy, and I practiced with it for years. He said, practice is like jumping out of an airplane, realizing you have no parachute, and then realizing there's no ground. That is the free fall into the mind's essential nature. Achan Sumedho, I'm going to to read a few descriptions of this experience and, and connect it to our practice. 
Sometimes this experience of the mind's essential nature is called nibbana, or nirvana, or nibbana. And Achan Sumedho says, nibbana refers to the realization human beings have when they are not grasping anything. In that realization of non-grasping, we experience a connection. When there is non-grasping, there is the real experience of compassion. When you realize non-grasping, you experience true ease, peacefulness, and bliss. But this state of happiness is not the usual one for human beings. We must train the mind and heart to realize it. It is there as a potential. We must realize it. Buddhadasa, another Thai forest master, writes about uh, Nibbana as coolness. Coolness. It is those that experience of mind, of letting go, when there is a feeling of coolness. He says, mindfulness helps us to sample Nibbana little by little moment by moment, during this very life. Gradually, the duration of that coolness is lengthened, its extent broadened, and its frequency increased until there is perfect nibbana. If attained, this benefit is very satisfying, the most worthwhile. So that is another description of this that we touch when we let go, this coolness of mind. And in another writing, which I don't have with me, but Buddha Dasa describes this experience of coolness is one we often touch in those moments of not grasping, in those moments of not needing to be anybody special, those moments of just pure awareness that we all touch many times during the day. He said, it is that experience of coolness which actually keeps us sane. That without those moments of coolness, we would go mad. We would be so lost in our conceptual world of thought that we would go crazy. So Nibbana keeps us sane. So this is what so many of the teachings are pointing to and why we emphasize letting go, why we emphasize the practice of letting go. But in our human world, we're up against our conditioning, aren't we? We're very much up against our resistance to letting go. You know, as I said the other night, the shortest meditation instruction in the world would be sit down and let go. But can we do that? Hardly anybody can. We, letting go is a process, it seems. Sometimes a process, perhaps, of, if not many lifetimes, many years. 
And it takes us on a journey, the practice of letting go. It takes us on a journey where we get to see so much about ourselves. In the culture in which we live, our sense of well-being, our sense of how we are doing, is very much linked to our ability to be in control to feel that we are in charge, that we have it all together in the way that we want, in the way that we have been taught to. And our ego selves struggle mightily to support the illusion that we are indeed in charge. Meditation, this form of meditation, challenges that very directly, from the very moment we first sit down. We walk into the meditation hall, we are a CEO of an important company, we have achieved much in our world, we have degrees, we have credentials, and we're told to sit down and follow our breath. Piece of cake. No problem, I can do that. And what happens? Well, we all know the result. We sit down and, you know, one breath, two breaths, we're gone. We, we discover that we're not in charge of this mind in the way that we had imagined we were. So this can seem kind of insulting. What's wrong with me? I can't make it work. (laughs) This is called the phase of practice, which is the bad news phase. All self-knowledge begins with bad news. (laughs) Now, if we can stay with it and get over the insult, there is good news here as well. Because over time, we discover that meditation teaches us that not being able to control every microsecond of our mind is actually okay. That we can be at peace with that. We can have a relationship to thought that is totally different than just one of being in charge. And that controlling our thinking is actually not the point of meditation, but rather much more to know the nature of thought itself. And to know the nature of thought means to understand this monkey mind. It has a mind of its own. And over time, part of the good news of practice is also that over time we begin and For some of you only having practiced three or four days here, you still may have this understanding that we begin to experience ourselves more as verbs than nouns. We are hearing, sensing, feeling, thinking, smelling, tasting. This is our living experience. This is how we actually experience ourselves. We are not winners, we are not losers, we are not failures, we are not great arhants. We are these, we are a stream, a process of life itself. 
we come to see in that that no one moment of our practice or of our life is ever the defining moment. No one moment of success is going to forever define us. One moment of failure, one moment of pain, one moment of joy is never the defining moment. Every moment is a part of an ongoing, unfolding process of change. Change is constant and inevitable. And as we practice, we even intimate at times how this process of change itself can become an ally. We can collaborate with change. It is actually something that we learn to trust. Sheng Yen advises us, think of your practice as a fine silvery stream. Follow the stream, have faith in its course. It will go its own way, meandering here, trickling there. It will find the grooves, the cracks, the crevices. Just follow it. Never let it out of your sight. It will take you. When we begin to allow our experience and our lives to unfold in this way, we find we can actually relax more. We can be curious about the changes and what will happen next. We can allow ourselves to explore, to play, not having so much at stake around being a success or having it all together. Knowing that through all the changes, we are connected to a much larger unfolding that has its own intelligence and that we are given what we need moment to moment. We learn we can trust the unpredictable, ever-changing river of our life. Now, This does not mean that we just become kind of, you know, passive, helpless victims of changing conditions, just kind of blowing with the wind. Because at the same time in our practice, we are cultivating intention. We are cultivating a sense of direction for our lives, a sense that this is where I want to go. And we remember that as we practice. It's like if we um, want to go to New York and we get on an airplane in San Francisco and on the way to New York we have to stop in Chicago and we have to change planes. So we get off the plane and we're in the airport in Chicago and suddenly we see, my goodness, there's all these other places I could be going. Maybe I should go to Miami and rather than New York or there's an international flight to Paris or maybe I should forget New York, go back to Hawaii. You know, we suddenly see there's all these other possibilities. But we don't get confused. We don't get lost. We know where we're going. We're going to New York. So we stay on the plane to New York. This is the power of 
clarity of intention in our lives. But what about when it's not so obvious where we are going? Here's another story. This is a story of a woman on a hiking trip in the woods of Alaska. She says, I don't know how it happened. One minute I was following the footprints and the sounds of the person in front of me, and the next minute it seemed they were gone. Maybe I was daydreaming. Maybe I was thinking of the meal we would prepare together when we stopped. All I knew was that I was alone. At first I didn't worry. I was sure they would come back to look for me at any moment. Then everything became strange. I realized I had no idea of how much time had passed. It could have been minutes. It could have been hours. The woods seemed to be filled with noises, none of them friendly. I imagined I heard bears stalking me. The undergrowth seemed filled with menace. Then those sounds were drowned out by another. I realized it was the pounding of my heart. I was sure I was going to die as I sank deeper and deeper into my own panic and terror. I curled up on the forest floor with my arms wrapped around me, lost in the horror of my own darkness. I thought of how awful my own life was, the marriage I was fleeing from, my failure with my children, the people I had hurt in my life. The thoughts of my own inadequacy and darkness seemed endless. Everything seemed so pointless. My empty relationships, the degrees I'd worked so hard to win, the love I'd tried so hard to earn, they all seemed so meaningless, ending in my death on this forest floor. It seemed like hours that I lay there and wailed and cried. My aloneness was like a black and bottomless pool. I was its victim and its creator. I sobbed and moaned and screamed. I cried out for help and knew it would never come, had never come when I needed it most. At last, exhausted, the tears and the sobs ended. And as I lifted my head, I realized that the light had changed and a breeze had sprung up. Gratefully, I felt it cool my flushed face and began to look around me. The vast stillness of the forest was still there. As I rubbed my swollen eyes, I saw the ways that the sun was reflecting off the greenery and the swaying of the branches in the breeze. Silently, hardly moving the branches, she came. A young deer stepped out onto the path in front of me, a path that I hadn't seen when I had cast wildly about in my terror. She seemed born of the woods and stood there lifting her nose to smell the breeze. She was so at home, so complete, so at one with the forest. I was entranced and watched her with a dreamlike calm as she stepped carefully through the undergrowth. She was alert to danger, 
constantly raising her head to sniff the air, but totally composed. It came to me that the difference between me and the deer was that fear for the deer was an ally, alerting her to danger, connecting her with her world. For me, fear was an enemy, driving me out of myself and out of my world. I got to my feet and slowly followed her. The path that was there for her was also there for me. After a time, the doe, sensing something, ran off into the woods. I watched her go, filled with gratitude. Keeping my eyes on the path, I was filled with a certainty that it would lead me to safety. To stay with the path, I needed to be so totally awake that I lost all consciousness of time. My body seemed to lose its boundaries. The branches grazed my face and the sun touched me. A deep peace filled me. I felt I was the forest and the forest was me. It came as a surprise to me when I realized I could smell wood smoke and could hear voices in the distance. When I stepped into the clearing where my friends had made camp, they came running with relief and concern etched on their faces. I never could explain to them the journey I had made in being lost. Sometimes we follow an intelligence in our process that is not dependent on reason. Sometimes we follow a knowing and a kind of intelligent energy that asks that we be completely present. Such intelligence does not in deny the facts of the situation, but is in full harmony with the present changing conditions. There used to be a poster of Swami Sachidananda, an Indian guru, long white beard, flowing robes, standing on a surfboard in the middle of the ocean with large waves all around him. And the caption under said, we cannot stop the waves, but we can learn how to surf. If we are surfing and we stop to think about, where do all these darn waves come from anyway? I don't like them. I wish they'd go away. This is a rather futile thought, isn't it? It doesn't really help us in the moment that the wave is upon us. Better to trust our energy and our bodies to know how to ride the wave. So when we are in the midst of change, can we awaken to this way of moving and collaborating with the unpredictable and spontaneous events of life? This is partly what our practice teaches us how to do as we let go of our usual ways of controlling things and we give way to a deeper trust 
in our ability to ride the waves of life. As we let go, another very big part of our um, constructed world gets challenged, and that is our, sometimes described as our views and opinions, or our sense of knowing what's what, and um, our sense of being secure in a kind of knowledge. Do not seek for the truth, only cease to cherish your views and opinions, the Buddha said. Or Yogi Berra echoes those words in his sutra when he says, it's not what we don't know that gets us into trouble, it's what we know for sure that just ain't so. We like to have a ground of conceptual knowledge under us that feels secure. But our practice asks us to know in a somewhat different way, to know based on our direct experience. At the beginning of our practice, we hear that the Buddha said, come see for yourself. And that seems like a very generous invitation to trust your actual experience, not to believe any dogma or doctrine or have to sign up for some kind of belief system. Later on in our practice, this may seem more challenging to trust the experience we are actually having more than the idea of the experience of what we think we should be having to trust the actual experience we are having. That may not feel like enough, because often the experience that we are actually having is an experience of, I don't know. I don't know what's happening. I haven't a clue. If we are honest with ourselves, we may find that. We are used to finding answers in the mind. But in meditation, we are shifting from that way of knowing. And this is considered in the Buddhist teaching a good thing, not to reference the mind so much in trying to figure it out, to analyze, to strategize, to have it all kind of lined up. And different Buddhist traditions have different ways of encouraging a more intuitive, direct understanding. In Vipassana, we encourage this deep silence and stillness of being to understand the limitations of the conceptual mind. Another Uh, Other traditions have other ways of evoking a more direct way of knowing. In the Zen tradition, they have what are called koans. 
Many of you may have even worked with koans at times in your practice. These are questions put to you by the teacher which cannot be answered by referencing the past or relying on conceptual knowledge. I had this experience early on in my practice. When I went to Mount Baldy Zen Center, a friend said, "Um, I hear there's this really amazing Zen guy teaching at Mount Baldy, Japanese Zen master, Sazaki Roshi. He's one of the original fierce and famous uh, Zen Roshis who came to this country. And my friend had a friend who was doing this and said it was great, and she heard about it and told me, and I said, oh, sure, let's go. So we ended up there, really not knowing what we were getting ourselves into. And they do a practice of koan study. So I was confronted with my first Zen master and my first koan. In that tradition, the wake-up bell is at three in the morning, and you have no choice. You get up, and you have um, about, I think, a half an hour before you go to the chanting hall. And so at 3.30 in the morning, you chant vigorously for about a half an hour in Japanese, to a bell, to a drum, and that really wakes you up. You think coffee is good, this is even better. It really gets you going at 3.30 in the morning to be chanting in Japanese. Then you run to the Roshi's room for your first of four interviews of the day. Four interviews a day. Imagine that. They're short. You don't get to to talk too much. You just get to answer the koan. So I raced into his room and bowed and did the ritual thing, and he asked me a question. He said, What is your Buddha nature when you hear the sound of a bird? At four in the morning. Nobody had ever asked me anything like this before, and I was so clueless, I think I said something like, I beg your pardon. (laughs) I couldn't believe that this was a real question, you know. (laughs) This question became my, my, you know, worst enemy for that week because I had to deal with it four times a day. (laughs) I had to rush in there and just feel completely, you know, foolish and like I was failing. I didn't know what the thing was about. I mean, it was horrible. So I hear that koan practice is wonderful. (laughs) Although I didn't have that experience myself. But it does force you out of your conceptual world. Sometimes I think the best koans that we bump into in in our lives are the koans that arise very naturally out of our life situations, out of our 
our own wanting to understand, our own questioning, our own having to move in a certain direction in our lives and just feeling the difficulty of it. These are our living koans that we bump into in our own lives. This willingness to question and to confront questions that we don't, we can't easily answer are ways of opening ourselves, are ways of bringing ourselves into a deeper understanding. Another question from another tradition is that, of course, of the question often used, who am I? Teachers in the um, Advaita Vedanta tradition of Hinduism often use this question. Ramana Maharshi, the great Indian saint, this was his device for teaching people, asking the question, who am I? Often what comes when we ask that question of ourselves, if we are very honest, often what comes, the first response to that question, we just right now ask ourselves, who am I? Often, if we are honest, the first response is, I don't know. There's kind of a blank. I don't know. But the mind thinks, that's not enough. I need a better answer. I need something more clever, more, you know, profound, spiritual, awake, whatever. We look for a better answer instead of actually trusting our actual experience. What if we stay with, I don't know? What if we stay with, I don't know? When we allow, I don't know, what is the actual living experience of that? Right now. What is your actual living experience of I don't know? Anybody? Comforting. Comforting. A relief. A relief. Creative. Creative. Full of possibility. possibility. Well, you guys are ahead of the curriculum here. (laughs) That's great. Because that, if you stay with that, There is a lot to explore. There is a lot to feel arise in yourself that has nothing to do with being ashamed that you don't know the answer. It has nothing to do with ignorance. It's not about just being ignorant. It's about really the living experience of an open, not-knowing questioning state of mind, a sense of possibility, a sense of openness. And this is a a valuable state to explore. In that not knowing, are we not very alive? Are we not very alive in that not knowing? It wakes us up a little bit. We pay attention a little bit more acutely. 
Sharon Butala. You have to stop thinking you already know things or know how to categorize them or that the world has already been explained and that you know those explanations. You know nothing. You understand nothing. Teach me is what you should say. Approach the world as a child seeing it for the first time. Remember wonder. Remember humility. Then things come to you as they did not when you thought you knew. It's an openness. This is a good attitude to bring to those moments when you are so convinced you know who you are. I'm a failure. I'm I'm not good enough. I'm not sufficient. That is a great source of suffering, these images we have of who we think we are. But that's all they are, images of who we think we are. We do ourselves a great service when we can open instead to say, is it true? Is that really who I am? Well, maybe I don't really know who I am. Master Punjaji said, you don't need any methods to get rid of wrong ideas you have about yourself. All that you have to do is to stop believing them. Stop believing them. So this process of letting go teaches us many things about ourselves on the way to realizing our true nature. We learn so very much and we learn the value of letting go, the value of letting go of control, the value of not needing to know so much, the value of being open and questioning. Everything we need to realize our true nature lies within us, just as the seed of the rose contains within it all that is needed for it to be a rose bush. Just so we have within us this potential to awaken, to be a Buddha. It, like the rose, only needs the right conditions for it to fully flower. Meditation and being in a retreat situation are optimal conditions for this encouragement of this potential to flower. And I feel that our lives also, when we are present and paying attention, also contain many catalysts for waking up. Being fully present is the key. So all these teachings of the Buddha Dharma that we teach here at Spirit Rock and that you will read about and that you hear about in many places, the teachings of the Four Noble Truths, the Five Spiritual Faculties, the Seven Factors, the Eightfold Path, 
the ten perfections, the four foundations, all these lists of things that may seem so daunting, all are actually just pointers for you to discover in your own experience the secret teachings, to realize them and to make them real for yourselves. So we have come to the end here. Thank you for your attention and let us sit for one moment together. beings everywhere realize their potential to awaken and be free. This talk was given by Anna Douglas at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on June 26, 2004. It is an offering of the Dharma.